my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Elon Musk's Twitter takeover, a $44 billion buyout that has pleased Donald Trump. Delighted, he said, that the social media company is now in what he describes as safe hands, but it hasn't pleased every Twitter user. As we record this, the hashtag delete is trending, reflecting the fact that many people are now threatening to leave the site. Referencing Twitter's logo, Musk has said, the bird is freed. But does that mean that we can expect to see a rise in hate speech and far-right politics? We'll be discussing this with Imran Ahmed, CEO of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, and Heidi Sigmund Kuda from the Radicalised Pod. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or corporation behind the scenes telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. Get more details over at our website bylinetimes.com and subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. More details at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then, Heidi and Imran. Imran, what's your first reaction to Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter? Well, I have to admit, I am terribly confused as to what happens next and what it means to have the Elon Musk era of ownership of Twitter, because he's saying different things to every different audience he comes across. So on Thursday, he told advertisers, don't worry, guys, it's going to continue to be a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner. And he promised them that a site with no rules, in his opinion, would be a hellscape free-for-all where anything can be said with no consequences. Those are his words, a hellscape free-for-all. Then he's telling everyone the bird is free. He's telling everyone he's a free speech libertarian. But he's also told the EU, he's told other countries that he is completely willing to abide by their rules. So Thierry Breton, the EU's commissioner for the internal market, replied to Elon's tweet saying the bird is free by saying, as long as it flies by our rules, which are, of course, the Digital Services Act just put into law in the EU. So the question is, which Elon is going to be in charge of Twitter? You know, I think the answer to that question is, clearly, he didn't want to do this deal. He's been forced into it after the courts ordered him to follow through on his initial promise. He's tried for months now to get out of doing the deal, spending millions of dollars on lawyers to try and get out of it. I think he's realized that this is a really invidious job that no one really wants to have to do because running the town square actually takes a lot of work. At the same time as not wanting to do it, he is, of course, uh an enthusiastic user of Twitter himself, isn't he? And the fact that people like Donald Trump are endorsing his takeover suggests that Twitter, as we know it, may well change the fact that people are hashtagging delete. But as with all business stuff, it really comes down to the money and the numbers. And Elon Musk is an engineer. He's a mathematician by training. He knows that he spent $44 billion to buy it. He knows that he's got to make a billion dollars of profit a year just to pay back the lenders to service his debt. 
The problem is Twitter has virtually never made that much profit. It has about $5 billion of revenue. 90% of it comes from advertisers. How is he going to make a billion dollars profit a year? So he's trying to do that by desperately firing staff. He says that he's going to fire three and four members of staff, 75%. But if you fire all the staff, then it does become a hellscape free for all where anything can be said with no consequences. So the truth is the mathematics on this are terrible for Elon Musk. And he must know that, which is why I think this is going to be a very short lived ownership of Twitter. The mathematics may be terrible. What about the politics, Heidi? Well, I look at it a little bit differently. I look at this as a land grab and an information war. We are in a great information war, and Twitter is roughly the same size as, let's say, America. So Musk is now the emperor of what was our very imperfect public square, but it's where many of us came together. All of us met each other, and those of us who are in the um, you know investigative journalism world made our alliances throughout the world. I mean, it's just been an incredible imperfect place. But because he is the same person who's been trying to negotiate foreign policy on behalf of a foreign nation state that is an aggressor in a war, and because somebody such as Donald Trump, who's a professional propagandist, says now it's in safe hands, well, what he's really saying is that it's the opposite. We are, of course, in danger. And as you know, if it's free, we're the product. And I keep thinking of those Twilight Zone episodes. People realize that they're actually the playthings of some alien being. And I feel like all the users on Twitter, I believe, as on any platform, are putting ourselves at some risk when you have a owner who is somebody who tweeted out Hitler memes against a head of state. So from a information war, and a trolling perspective, I have great concerns. When it was originally announced that he was going to attempt to purchase Twitter, anybody who was on the platform saw an escalation of hate speech, an escalation of pornography. It became like Pottersville and It's a Wonderful Life overnight, where those of us who use the tools and block the trolls and block all the trauma merchants can kind of curate our timelines away from a lot of the psychological terrorism that occurs on there daily. And I don't know moving forward, that's going to be as easy. So I think we are uh, using this platform at great peril. You call him uh, the supporter of an aggressive foreign state. I mean, in fairness to Elon Musk, his satellite, Starlink, was activated after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and has been hailed by Ukraine as being useful to its military during the conflict. So Musk is a curious figure, isn't he? I'm not, you know, we look perhaps for some kind of consistency in his worldview. I, do, I don't, yeah, I don't think we can anymore, Adrian. I think binary questions don't work in an information war. We know we have a fifth column in America that has been very actively propping up Putin. And so what you just said was really a good PR move. But when you have him using his platform with all of his millions and millions of users trying to basically offer some sort of appeasement to Vladimir Putin, that's really alarming. 
And again, we saw Trump doing stuff like this all the time before he was banned after leading a violent insurrection. And, you know, we're also talking about somebody who, you know, has a $258 billion lawsuit against him for a crypto coin that was alleged to have been a pyramid scheme. And once again, it feels like our freedoms are continually weaponized against us. And we keep on asking, are we a country of laws or not? Right now, there's nothing to prevent this from happening. But the way I look at it, again, in an information war is, you know, I say it again, this is, I think, a very dangerous time. I think there's nothing free about hate speech. All you have to do is look on Twitter and see all of what free speech looks like under a Musk ownership. I look at this as uh, an escalation of what we, I think, mistakenly called trolling culture. These are large-scale subversion operations that are causing psychological trauma, and I don't see this becoming a safe space under Musk. I think this speaks to one of the bits of confusion for us, because the truth is that Elon Musk you know, said he's going to make it a free-for-all. So this is what we found in our research over the past three years of being a public organization, in which we do things like report hate speech to platforms and then go back and audit what action they take. And what we found was that of, say, abuse alleging that LGBTQ plus people are groomers, this really pernicious lie that's being pushed by the far right in the US, even if you report it to them using their own tools, 99% of the time they do nothing. 97% of the time, if you report content with anti-Muslim hatred, like extreme anti-Muslim hatred, they do nothing. 88% of the time for accounts that send misogynist abuse to high-profile women. 84% of the time when there's racist abuse thrown at footballers. 77% of the time when we sent them tweets which contained Nazi-level anti-Semitism. The truth is that this platform is already a cesspit that's badly run by one billionaire. And it's now been taken over by another billionaire who says he's going to run it even more poorly. The rules have never mattered. It's the enforcement that's been so poor. And the enforcement is clearly going to get worse. That's why he's fired. Very senior officers at the company, including the, the guy in charge of safety, has just been sacked in the last 24 hours. The truth is this platform is going to become even worse. And that's the whole problem, isn't it? Is that we've gone from one billionaire to another billionaire and we're subject to the whims of a capricious person trying to read intent as though we're sort of reading biblical texts exegetically trying to calculate what does Elon Musk say when he says that he wants to have freedom on that platform? Does he mean the freedom to abuse or does he mean the freedom to live without abuse? So is he saying that the human right to abuse women is a fundamental human right and not, for example, the human right of dignity, you know, a fundamental universal right? So we don't understand. And the problem is that we're subject to the whims of these incredibly capricious, incredibly arrogant, and frankly, incredibly stupid billionaires who keep telling us that they've got their own vision of what freedom means and how to run the platform and why we need more democratic accountability, whether that's through legislation, regulation, or subjecting themselves to the courts. In the US, these platforms enjoy absolute pure immunity for all the hatred that they host, all the disinformation, all the problems that they cause in society. 
And in the UK, we don't have any legislation in place yet. Why? Because I've been discussing with you guys on Byline Times for over a year now, the online safety bill, and it's still not law. And we need to have tools available so that we can have a democratic voice in the decision making on what happens to these platforms that, as Heidi correctly says, are absolutely crucial to the way in which we conduct discourse within our democracies. Heidi talks about the fact that if a an online service is free, it's not really free because they are mining our data and using it to sell on to advertisers. Now, most notoriously, Facebook was used by Cambridge Analytica. Attempts were made to interfere with the Scottish referendum, with the EU referendum in 2016 in the UK and in the US presidential election as well. Has Twitter hitherto been embroiled in the same kind of controversy around data mining then being used to manipulate political campaigns? Well, the irony is they're not a particularly good company for what's called psychographic data, which is information on the attitudes and behaviours of their users. We don't use Twitter in the same way that we use Facebook. Facebook, we hand over all our personal data to, who our relationships are with, which topics we like. With Twitter, there's less data available to mine, but they certainly do provide their services and information on who you like. I mean, we have used the advertising service within Twitter to see how much data is available. And of course, there's tons of information available on people. But there is also, more fundamentally, real estate. So the fundamental job of every platform is to provide real estate, to provide content, to provide eyeballs watching that content that then advertisers can place their adverts next to. And Twitter is really good at drawing eyeballs in. It's got lots and lots of content that people scroll through continuously, you know, engaging in debates, engaging in arguments. And all the time that you're doing that, you're consuming adverts. The problem is that advertisers don't want their advert for their latest soap product to appear next to a tweet saying, Marcus Rashford is the N-word. And that's really the fundamental issue that Twitter is going to face. How on earth is it going to maintain a viable business that's attractive to advertisers if they provide all the data on what we think, but the real estate that you're advertising on is toxic? Here, here. And I was just reflecting back on the interview that Radpod did with Imran, where he said a couple really poignant things that have always kind of stuck with me and also comforted me. One of them is that I've been the target of a uh, character assassination campaign that's ongoing, ebbs and flows for four years now because of the work that I do. It's a particularly toxic space for women. There's a lot of misogyny, but I've always known. If I pull myself out, then that's one less voice trying to bring truth. And Imran once told me that the reason that you're attacked is because you do good work. And I've applied that to all my friends who are continually trying to do good work, who always look down on their timelines and see all the vitriol and all of the truth subversion. I I try to avoid the word trolling because it's just not strong enough for what we actually go through. And also Imran said something that was also equally brilliant, that unless there are impacts on shareholders that get to such a point that something has to be done, nothing really gets done. So there's really no teeth in any of the guardrails that we have right now. So those who are paid operatives, who are paid to 
target candidates or investigative reporters or people like Imran who do the work to counter digital hate. They really haven't faced any repercussions. Certain countries like Japan are now putting teeth in their legislation. So if you are causing online harms, uh, you may go to prison. So we are seeing some countries get a handle on it. But we are still the wild, wild west, and it is still a terrible free-for-all. And just a little headline on what you guys were talking about earlier, I was recalling the ex-Twitter employee who was found guilty of spying on Saudi dissidents. That's just one example of someone who got caught. So we don't know how much of the information that we put out and what's happening with our DMs. And we actually learned, I believe it was from the January 6th committee hearings, that DM drafts on Twitter can end up in investigations. It's funny because I think about how we do live in interesting times. And I'm not sure that that's a great thing because we are 10 days away from an election in America where we are deciding if we wish to continue being a democracy or not. And my show just had Professor Jason Stanley on who wrote the book, How Fascism Works. And he talked about fascist groupings and how it looks throughout the world right now. And I'm looking at this as one of those groupings. They're putting together factions and elements that are not necessarily uh, believing that, you know, liberal democracies are, um, it's kind of that Peter Thiel quote where he was like, he didn't believe that democracy and freedom were compatible anymore. I have grave concerns. What can I tell you? This was always an imperfect platform, but it's where I met all the people that I love to do this incredible work in a time of mass deception. And I am not comforted by somebody who spends an inordinate amount of time trolling and manipulating the conversation being in charge. Heidi picks up on something there, which I think is very important to reflect on, which is the fact that many people find Twitter a valuable, proactive platform, not least me and not least Byline Times generally. I tend to advertise my podcast primarily through Twitter. We host Byline Radio on Twitter Spaces. It's a a brilliant platform that allows me to host phone-ins that sometimes get thousands of listeners, whether live or then on the replay. And although there are those people who say, I'm going to leave Twitter now, I don't want to share space with the likes of the anti-Semitic Kanye West, I don't want to share space with the likes of Donald Trump, Other people are saying, well, no, stay and fight your corner. There are tools that allow you to block and to mute people that you don't like, but it's still a platform that allows you to put your own message out there. And that's why I think this is such a a nuanced discussion around Twitter, because it does have many positives. Look, social media clearly has a really powerful value proposition to people. So I moved to America in June 2020 during the pandemic to Washington, D.C. Clearly, I'm British. I left behind everyone I love. I left behind my friends, my family. The way that I maintained my sanity, that I gained succor, that I was able to express vulnerability, 
express love was through social media in an age in which we couldn't physically meet and I was physically dislocated as well. And so I see the power of social media. I see the power of a platform like Twitter where I can see the latest takes on issues. Quite often I get in the news faster on Twitter than I do on other platforms, including news websites. But the issue is that just because something is good doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and deal with what is bad. And Elon Musk's conclusion has been not that this space is somewhere where women feel uncomfortable taking part in discussions or putting their voices out because they know that if they do, they'll get tons of abuse, where Jewish people feel that this is a space that actually is hostile to them, where African-Americans and black people feel that racism is tolerated. His conclusion is that the problem is that there's not enough of that stuff. And that's bananas. It's not only bananas because it's untrue. And actually to have a healthy debate, you do need to have rules of discourse. In any debate, in any space that you ever take part in, whether it's in parliament or a high school, or if it's in the pub, if you started shouting the N-word in the pub, you'd be kicked out. If you started shouting misogynist abuse to someone, you'd be kicked out. If you started doing any of the things that Elon Musk says are necessary to his vision of free speech or purports, are necessary for his vision of free speech, you'd be kicked out. And that's why he himself has acknowledged that you need to have rules to have healthy debate. He's only acknowledged them, however, to date to the advertisers. And it's unclear where he's taking that platform. I want social media to do what it should be able to do, which is to enable conversations that we cannot have in the real world because we're physically so dislocated, to make the world seem closer, to seem more intimate to us, for us to understand each other. There's a kind of a, a little bit of a Star Trek nerd in me, the liberal, you know, the idea that we can have this great unified planet in which we all have this amazing debate and we therefore are able to enhance our species and enhance our collective knowledge through constant productive discourse. No one would look at Twitter though and say, yep, that's the mechanism for doing it because it clearly isn't fit for purpose. And the problem again, isn't that there is too little abuse and too little hatred and too little disinformation on that platform, is that there is too much. And you see it, Heidi, as one of the prime arenas for this information war that you described going on in the United States, yeah. also in the UK and the West generally. Yeah, because we're living it, I think that we'll have a much better grasp of what we have gone through in a few years because we're combating it daily. But as I've said on your show before, Adrian, we should have never looked at the information war separate from any of the kinetic war, because it's all part of the same war. And I look at Hillary Clinton as the first politician who was virtually assassinated in an information war. I work in community politics, and I am watching paid operatives do a character assassination on candidates. And I have made much of my life's work investigating the network's that do this type of work and what we, I think, mislabeled as trolling. Again, too lightweight of a work to talk about the trauma merchants and the emotional terrorism and the stochastic terrorism. And unfortunately, because we continually allow our freedoms to be exploited, we have people who, myself included, I am not the same person I was four years ago before I was targeted with a hate campaign. And I've learned to live with it 
And I feel like many people I know are soldiers in a war that is still ill-defined. And we still don't have any great summits or tech summits saying, hey, this is what's happening and what are we going to do? How are we going to help people? I'm literally looking at an FBI warning from 2014 where they basically said that the FBI observed a new pattern of Russian government-funded businesses increasing their footprint in Silicon Valley by joint ventures with U.S. companies and academic institutions. And they went on to name a lot of the operatives involved, many of whom have had indictments recently from the Department of Justice. And there's been a long game being played here. Unfortunately, we are still fighting this in our own silos, people like Imran with the work he does, Byline Times. But we don't have this collective saying there's something wrong. It seems to be getting worse. It's having dramatic impacts on youth. It's having dramatic impacts on anybody who's trying to spread truth. There's an occupier army on Twitter, and the job of this occupier army is to snuff out anyone bringing truth about any of these people that we all write about. And we need help. And we need it to be from the leaders of the democratic nations that are still fighting to retain their democracies, because the folks that are part of what I call the fifth column are trying to essentially protect capitalism from democracy, which is why it's a very real fight. And we should have never separated the online trauma merchants and the disinformation war from all of the various kinetic wars that we are seeing from all of these same people, including what we see in Russia and Ukraine. It's always been part of a war against the West. It just looks different. And we weren't prepared for it. And I still think we're not prepared for it. We just, you know, Roe gets overturned, Musk takes over Twitter. Everyone's worried about gas prices. I just wonder if we're going to continue using it. And of course, not everybody will. And that right has to be respected. If we're going to continue using it at all for the for the good that it has, are we reliant then on governments to take action for governments like the UK government, where there has been pushback on the online safety bill to ensure that Twitter, if it wants to operate within our jurisdiction, that it does so responsibly and that if it fails to do so, that it is appropriately punished. This gets back to why the Centre for Countering Digital Hate exists, that we saw the ways in which bad actors were using digital spaces to create harm. And we saw in particular that these spaces, these digital spaces that have become really important ways in which we share information, we create community, we build our brands, we even negotiate our values, negotiate the norms of attitude and behavior, even negotiate what we call facts, were being instrumentalized, were being used by bad actors to create enormous amounts of harm. Whether those bad actors are the Russian disinformation units, they were white supremacists, they were extreme misogynists, they were all sorts of people. And that we realized over time, the platforms themselves were part of the same system. They were unwilling to do anything about it. They had community standards, for example. You sign up to them when you join a platform. You say, I will not be racist, I will not spread disinformation, I will not do this, I will not 
can't do that. Now, that's my responsibility as a user of the platform, but it's also a reciprocal right that I should expect others to have to behave in that way. And it's the breakdown of that social contract, actually a literal contract that's been so problematic. What the UK government, I think, quite cleverly and elegantly has done is said, we want to know what your rules are, how you enforce them, what meaningful moves you're making to ensure that those rules are respected for all, and to ensure that that those community standards are something that people can expect. And where you fail to do that, we might take action against you. And I think that's quite a clever solution. However, the question is, does it meet the Musk test, which is what happens if someone buys a platform that already has a big user base and then takes all the rules away? Because there are platforms where there are no rules, like Parler and Gab and Truth Social. No one uses them. There's about 500,000, a million users. They're all shared across the platforms. These are tiny platforms. Something like Twitter actually has 280 million users. Facebook has billions of users. Almost half the world uses Facebook. So the question is, what happens when someone takes over one of those platforms and gets rid of all the rules? And that's going to be the real test for the UK government in the coming weeks. I know they're making changes because we've talked to ministers. I talked to the Secretary of State a few weeks ago. I know they're making changes. The question is, are they going to meet the Musk test, which is what happens if a platform that is used by hundreds of millions of people is taken over by a Muppet? Imran, thank you very much indeed. A good point at which to end. Thank you. Uh, Imran Ahmed there from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Thanks also to Heidi Sigmund Kuda from the Radicalised Pod. Radicalised spelt in the American way with a Z, and that's available via YouTube. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Please, if you can, take out a subscription. Get more information over at our website, bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.